Is it okay if we shut the air off? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Or or turn it down. I'm sorry. It is what it is. Um, if you don't have a Bible this morning, we're going to be turning to a couple of places. There are Bibles on the back table. Um, if you need one, uh, you can make your way back there and get one. Um, before we start this morning, uh, uh, let's take a moment uh, just to bow our heads and ask the Lord um, to speak to our hearts this morning, uh, to open up our eyes to His Word, um, to reveal Himself uh, to us. Dear Heavenly Father, we just... Thank you for this day that you have given us, Lord. Thank you that we can be gathered here. Thank you for everyone that has come out this morning to hear your word, Father, to praise your name, Lord, to be with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to fellowship with one another, Lord. We thank you for everything that you have done. We thank you for the gift of your Son. Lord, this morning as we open up your word, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the understanding that we need to learn from the Scriptures, to hear it as truth, and to apply it to our lives. Lord, I just ask that your word, as it says, does not come back void. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. This morning, um, we're going to be in a couple of passages. The first passage, last week, um, as Pastor Jacob was teaching, he had mentioned a specific scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I'm going to read it really quick. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and, can take, and cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." As I listened to that last week and was sitting in the back taking notes, um, it, it dawned on me what does it mean to be content? Um, what is contentment? The contented life, what is it? How do we get it? Because it seems like that's what everybody is, is trying to pursue. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to feel joyful. They don't like to experience pain. We don't like to... Um, be ridiculed, made fun of, put down, any other things. We like to just go on our way, do what we want to do, and enjoy life. And yet, for a Christian, a contented life is very different than the life that the world would have us believe. In the, the New Bible Dictionary, contentment, this is how they define it. It says it denotes freedom from reliance upon others whether other persons or other things. Hence, the satisfaction of one's needs or the control of one's desires. It is not a passive acceptance of the status quo, but the positive assurance that God has supplied one's needs and the consequent release from unnecessary desire. The Christian can be self-contained, because he has been satisfied by the grace of God. The Christian spirit of contentment follows the fundamental commandment of Exodus 20, 
17, against covetousness. It's the exhortations of the prophets against avarice in Micah too. And supremely, the example and teaching of Jesus, who rebuked the discontent which grasps at material possessions to the neglect of God, found in Luke chapter 12, which we will be looking at this morning, and who commended such confidence in our Father in heaven as will dispel all anxiety concerning physical supplies. So if you would this morning, turn in in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. For those of you that were here on Wednesday, some of this may sound familiar, um, and we're going to go a little bit deeper than we did on Wednesday night. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Jesus is here, and this is labeled the parable of the rich fool. Someone asked Jesus, someone in the crowd said to him in verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The parable of, of the rich fool is exactly as we would see the world. What is contentment according to the world? Well, contentment is exactly as the rich fool said. I have ample goods stored up for myself. I am set. I have the food that I need. I have a house to cover me. I'm set. I can just sit back. I can relax. I can enjoy. I can sit down and watch some TV. Just take a load off, go on vacation, whatever it may be, and eat, drink, and be merry. There's, there's no worries there. He has no anxieties because he feels as if everything is already out in front of him. He's already accomplished everything. But the phrase that is most important is there is as Jesus is, is telling this person, as he asks him, teacher, divide the inheritance. Tell my brother. I mean, he's keeping everything for him. The eldest brother is the one who gets the inheritance uh, back um, in olden days. He was the one that would inherit most of everything. The others would, would get some, but he gets the bulk. He's going to be the next leader of the family, the male. And he's telling him, tell my brother, I want some of this too. He can't have all of it. Tell my brother to share, divide the inheritance with me so that we'll both be able to be happy. And what Jesus says is it's not based on one's possessions. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist 
in the abundance of his possessions. And yet the world will say to be content is you need all of these things. You need to have a good car. You need to have your own house. You need to have whatever it may be. You need to have a great job. You need to have this much money in the bank. You need to have a savings on top of that. You need to have a retirement account already in place so that when you're older, you're all set. You don't have to worry about anything. Exactly as the rich fool can say, I'm good. I'll just sit back, relax, enjoy. And yet the funny thing is, when we read scriptures, I would venture to guess that as Jesus is telling this parable, what would be on his mind is the one who knows God isn't going to say, hey, I have already these storehouses. They're getting kind of full. Maybe I should get rid of some of it so I can put the new stuff in. Somebody who knows the Lord would, would say, well, let's share this. But the rich fool says, no, I'm going to tear these down. They're useless to me. They're, they don't store enough. I'm going to keep everything for myself. I want to make sure that I am set, that it's all about me. It's not about anybody else. But the thing that matters is, he says at that verse in 20, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? According to the world, you need all these things, but, and the saying is, and I've heard it just recently, he who dies with the most toys, what? Wins, Wins. yeah. Well, the problem is, he who dies with the most toys still dies. And you can't take anything with you, exactly as we read in the beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 6, when he's saying, we can't take it with us. What good is it? Exactly as he's telling the parable, what good is it if you store up all these things and yet your life is demanded of you this night? What have you to show for it? Absolutely nothing. Instead of otherwhere in Scripture where it says, what, if you give a glass of water to somebody, you do it in my name, you give them food to eat, you do it in my name. Ecclesiastes 5, chapter 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. We've looked at Ecclesiastes before, and Pastor Jacob has preached a little bit on this um, a few months ago. Um, but Solomon, in all of his wisdom, a man who had everything. Uh, he had enough money. He had um, enough to do any project that he wanted to do. He tried civil projects uh, to, to build great things, to make great things. He had all the women that he could ever desire. He says he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He can do whatever he wanted. He had um, renown throughout the area. People would come to him for his wisdom, would come to him for his understanding. And yet, in Ecclesiastes, most of what he says is vanities of vanities. Everything is vanity. It's meaningless. It's like a chasing after the wind. And there in, in chapter 510, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Proverbs 15, verse 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. If we go back to that First Timothy passage that we read, if we would go on in there, you will see exactly 
what Paul is saying to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We read verses 6 and 8 where it says in 8, But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But he goes on in verse 9, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And this is the key. Most people will say money is the root of all evil, but the Word of God says for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The world will say we need to amass more and more. We need to gain more and more. We need to get a good education. We need to get a good job. We need to have money. And yet, the Word of God says money is not evil in and of itself. Money is not the problem, but the love of money is. The love of accumulating wealth. The love of continuing to satisfy one's own desires above all else. The love of money causes people, as in 1 Timothy, as Paul is telling Timothy, he says, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. They were not content. They were not happy with their lot in life. They were not happy with where they were. They were not happy. And so it drove them to pursue money. That elusive thing that we all need to live, to sustain ourselves. But the question is, at what cost? I know there are some who have given up high-paying positions because there was something else that mattered more. It was not for love of money, but it was love of others. Love of money causes you to sacrifice. Causes you to sacrifice at the cost of your family, at the cost of your friends, sometimes at the cost of your own health. It takes everything, but it gives nothing in return. Exactly as Ecclesiastes says, it will not satisfy. It's vanity. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, tells us, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? As Hebrews says, be content with what you have. Where are you in this life? Where has God taken you from? And where is he bringing you to? And on that path, are you content? Are you happy to trust in God? If you would turn back to Luke, we're going to read further after the parable of the rich fool. Starting in verse 22. What does it mean to be content in this life? This is what? The word has to say, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, 
what you will put on, what you will put on. For life is, is more than food and the body more than clothing. How many of us are, are, are just those concerns up for us? What am I going to eat? How am I going to provide for my kids? What are they going to wear? And we have those concerns here, but how many have those concerns elsewhere in the world where we are far richer by comparison? But he said, life, it's more than food, the body more than clothing. He says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? God has created his creation. We, we call him creator God. He has made everything before us, everything that we see. And when he talks about creation, he talks specifically about creating you and me. And it's the only place in all of creation where it says we were made in his image. Nowhere else where it's the creation made in his image. Nobody else had that special designation. No other animal, no other creature. Nothing else that was created was made in his image, and yet we were. And so as the word is telling us, he takes care of the ravens. They have nothing set aside. They, they don't worry about that. They haven't stored up anything. They haven't put it away in savings. As with the rich fool, they haven't stored it in barns to be used at a later time in case of famine. And yet God feeds them. He goes on in verse 25, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? How many of us would like to add a single hour to the span of our life? Some days, 24 hours doesn't seem like enough. But yet what God is saying is, consider who you are. Are you like me, is what he's saying? Are you like me, that you can add time to your life? Do you have that power? Do you have that capability? Absolutely not. It's not within our purview. It's not within our abilities. So he says, if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that. Pretty interesting words. Adding a single hour to your life to God, is, it's, it's very small. It's not anything big. I could do that, no problem. And yet he's saying for us, we're not able to do even such a small thing as that. And he says, so if you're not able to do that, why are you anxious about all this other stuff? Why are you anxious about the rest? He goes on now. First he talked about the ravens. Now he's going to talk about the lilies. He says, 27, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. As we talked about earlier, Solomon had, had everything. He had wealth to buy the best things money could buy. And throughout the known world at that time, whatever he desired, whether he needed to be shipped in on a camel's back or some other form of transportation back then, it could be brought to him. Money was no cost. So he could have the finest fabrics, the best linens. And yet God is saying the lilies of the field were arrayed better than Solomon. And they didn't need to work for it. They didn't need to do anything. They just needed to be. They needed to exist. 
God says, but, and Jesus is saying, but if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith. The question in there is, how is your faith? Do you trust in God? And this past Wednesday, we were talking about fears and things that hold us back from sharing our faith, from telling other people about the love of God, of what He has done in our life, of how He has changed us, of how it's all about Him. It's all about His Son Jesus and the sacrifice that He made and what He has accomplished for us so that we can even be here this morning to praise His name, that we can even be here to listen to His words and for me to even preach them to you. It's all because of Him. And it came down to the biggest thing. It wasn't our, our, our huge our fears, whether it was not knowing the right words to say, not having the correct answers. Maybe something in our life was holding us back. Maybe sinful, sinfulness in our lives. We didn't want people to call us a hypocrite. Whatever it was, the biggest thing that holds us back, I think, and I mentioned on Wednesday, was unbelief. Unbelief at who God is and what He says is true. That when we read the Scriptures, when we read His Word, do we take it at face value to mean exactly what it, He said it to mean? That when He does say, why are you anxious about these things? Why do you worry about what you eat and what will be on your body? Do we honestly take him at that and not worry about it? Do we bring it to him? 29. Do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Just like the world. He says, all the nations, they already do all this. That's the lot of, of, of everybody in this world. But there's, there's a caveat there. There's a specialness in that God already knows that you need them. But for those of us who know Him, He says in verse 31, instead, seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. The contented life is, is not one that comes, as we said, in the wealth of possessions and the accumulation of money and the ability to do whatever we want. The contented life is one that is led by first seeking Christ, by first coming to Him, by first humbling ourselves before Him and acknowledging, you are God and I am not. You are able to do so much more than I am. I have no control. As much as we like to think that we are in control or have a perception that I control things around me, the, the reality is we don't. Just like the rich fool, he couldn't control anything. He didn't know when his time was come. And so he was going about life with no worries, no cares, because he thought he was set and he thought, I'm going to be good for, for years to come. If a famine would come, I have enough in my storehouse. I'll weather the storm. I'll be fine. 
And yet his lack of control was over, well, the cost of his life was that night. It was demanded of him. His time was up. And he has nothing to show for it. The contented life is one where we seek his kingdom. And as Luke tells us, it's, it's not about as the lilies that don't toil, don't, don't work for it. It's not as, as the ravens, they haven't stored all of this up. They haven't toiled as well. But it's a trust and a belief and a faith in God that he cherishes you, that he loves you, that his desire is to bless you. But what he desires of us is for us to come to him, to bow down before him. Now, Jacob had mentioned on Pastor Jacob last Sunday that, um, quite comically, that does not mean to be impoverished, to be in poverty, that wealth and money, as we said, it's not evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil, as the word of Scripture says. So it doesn't necessarily mean that being rich is going to be a problem. It doesn't mean that we should be poor. Have some of us been called to be poor? I'm sure certain, certain some of us are. Have some been called to be rich? Yes, I'm sure some of us certainly are. But the fact of the matter is that we are a family. And we are all connected by Jesus Christ. And as that family, we take care of one another. He had mentioned not being in poverty, not being poor, not, as he had mentioned, some churches like to keep their pastors humble. You know, we'll, we'll teach him how to, how to be on his knees and, and to have faith and all of those things. And yet, if we looked back at 1 Timothy, as Paul goes on in verses 17, it gives a little bit of a, of a warning, of a message for us. So we know that being rich in of itself is, is not sinful because the word tells us in verse 17 of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. There it is right there. Not the love of money, not being secure in everything that they have, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God has provided everything. Everything that you have currently, He has provided all of us. Everything belongs to God. We can't lay claim and say, this is mine, God, you can't have it, because He has given it to us. He has given us the abilities that we have to work and to do good. He has given us the abilities to help others. Because this is what it says. They are, to, in verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the warning to the rich, the warning to those that have money, the warning to those is not to see your wealth as something to be secure in as the rich fool did in Luke. 
but to what? Be rich in the things of God, to store for yourself treasure in heaven. Scripture says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your treasure? Who is your treasure? Is it like those of the world that says we need to accumulate all these things? Or is it found in our one and only Savior and Redeemer, God? And so whether we are rich or whether we are poor, it doesn't matter. The call is still the same. The call is still to do good, to be rich in good works. In Proverbs 30, chapter 7 and 9, the words of the psalmist here says, Two things I ask of you. He says, Deny them not to me before I die. He asks the Lord, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. He says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be fool and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. In those two cases, and we've seen it in the life of Israel and other parts of the Old Testament, that when Israel was doing well, when Israel had what they needed, when they were, as the psalmist here says, full, they forgot about the Lord. They trusted in the work of their own hands. They trusted in their own toil, in their own abilities, in everything that they have done and say, look at what I have accomplished. Look at what I have done and I have been able to provide for my family. To the detriment of themselves in saying it is not God who has granted me this, but it is I myself. The Israelites forgot the psalmist here is saying, let me not be like that. Let me not be fool and deny and say who is the Lord. But he says also, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Both instances are unbelief. Both instances are a lack of belief in God. The first is, the belief in my own abilities, and the second is, well, God's not there. He hasn't provided for me, and so I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and I'll make sure we have something to eat, whether it's against the law or not. Both instances forgets about the Lord and says, I'm going to take care of it. The question is, as we read earlier, where is your faith? Are you content, as Hebrews says, to be content with what you have? Do you believe, as it's said in the Word, I will never leave you nor forsake you? So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The example that we looked at Wednesday and we're going to look at tonight as well, or this morning, tonight, wow. I'm already gone through the day. 
the example, and, and a man I love to study and a man I love to read about is the Apostle Paul. And we looked a little bit this past Wednesday about who Paul was, that his, his former name was Saul, that he was a persecutor of the church, that in his own words, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was studied in the law. He was one who can say in the flesh, I'm good, I'm, I'm, I've followed, I've obeyed, I've done well. And yet being met with a vision on the road to Damascus and blinded and hearing the words of Jesus said, why, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Why are you doing this? But a man whose life you can see as you read the scripture who's changed dramatically. A man who is, who is taken from persecuting the church, from being there at the stoning of Stephen, carrying everyone's, you know, just, I'll take your cloaks and everything. You go ahead, go pick up some rocks, go throw them at this man. He believes in this other guy. He's not the true God. He deserves to die. And then one who can say, everything that I have done, everything that I have accomplished, without Christ, it is worthless, without gain. I count it all as, as lost compared to knowing Christ. If you would turn with me to Philippians. This is a gem of a book. If you haven't read Philippians, I would encourage you to read it. And we're going to flip it around a, a little bit in this book. Um, but many people are familiar with Philippians, Philippians 4. Thirteen. Many people look at this. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Many claim it to be their life verse. But I like what Paul says prior to that. Starting in verse 10. The heading, God's provision. Paul is saying to the Philippian church, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As we look at the life of Paul, how was Paul able to be content? We've discussed the life of Paul other times in meetings. Paul gives a, a huge list of everything that he has gone through. Whether he was being beaten, whipped, rotted, he was shipwrecked, thrown in prison. I mean, his, his, his life was one that many of us would say, I, I don't want, Lord, I don't want to be called to that. I, I don't want to endure that. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And yet through everything... Paul says, I have learned to be content in any and every situation. 
And it's because of that verse where it says, I can do all things through him and strengthens me. His entire focus, his entire life is comprised of looking at one person. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter what the situation is around you. It doesn't matter if you are thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to provide? In that situation, Paul would tell us, go to the Lord. Rely on Him. Present your requests to Him. He tells us that earlier. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4, Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's secret. That's how he says, I can be content in any and every situation. Because it's not based on what I go through. It's not based on where I am at in life. It doesn't matter if people are ridiculing me. In our own lives, it's not a matter of, are we making enough? Do we have enough stored away? Do we have enough food to put on the table? All those valid questions, absolutely. And God's not dismissing them, but he's saying, rely on me. Come to me. Seek me first. What happens in our life is our focus is, is away from God. When, everything, when situations and circumstances arise that we don't know what to do, we don't know how we're going to provide, we don't know where to go, who to turn to, for often we say, as we read earlier, is... Well, God's not there. He's, he's not providing. I'm in this situation. I'll, I'll take my own chances on it. I'll do it myself. If God is being quiet, if He is not speaking, well then, I'm not going to believe Him at His word. So, And we do it by action, not always in thought. In, in, in thought, we think God is able to do, but our actions say... He's not able to. Let's do whatever we can. But he says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. The secret was, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts in your minds in Christ Jesus because it is a reliance upon Him, upon His power, upon His abilities, upon exactly what His Word has told us, that He cares about us, that He cherishes us, that He desires good things for each and every one of us. Earlier in Philippians, and we're backtracing in Philippians, um, a little bit. 
Paul says, and this is what I had mentioned before, chapter 3, verse 8. Let's go to 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He lays out the gospel, great, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Because earlier he gives that list of being a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless in verse 6. Looking forward, he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law. It's not, it's not about what I have done. It's not about what I have been doing in my own abilities, but it is exactly what comes through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And this is his prayer, that I may know him, in verse 10, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. The lot of all of us. And I, I love Paul because when you read him, he, he's, very, he's down to earth. You can identify with him at some point along his life. I, I know what you're thinking. I know what you were going through. We may not have suffered everything that he has suffered. But what he talks about, it hits because it talks about the human condition, about our fears, our worries, our anxieties, our struggles, our sin. But he tells us to lay it all before Christ. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What a glory. What a wonderfulness. Like Paul, we can say that. That Jesus Christ has made me his own. He says, brother, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So wherever you are, if you came in there this morning and you were thinking about the circumstances that surround your life, if you're thinking, man, how do I answer? Where is my faith? Do I have faith in God? Am I trusting in Him? What am I doing? Do I believe Him in His Word? Whatever has gone on prior to this, from this point on you can say, I will live my life for the Lord. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. Paul says, Brothers in 17, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you 
and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Exactly as he's told Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's exactly what he's telling the Philippian church. People are trusting in themselves. They're trusting in their full bellies and being able to provide for themselves. They're trusting in the glory, or they're glorying in their shame. It doesn't matter what God's law says. I'm happy. I'm content because I'm doing what I want to do. But it's the same thing that we read in Luke, fool. None of that matters. If it's not for Christ, if your life is not covered by the blood of Christ and His sacrifice by faith in Him, then everything that you have worked towards, exactly as Solomon tells in Ecclesiastes, is vanity. It's meaningless. Because apart from God, everything is meaningless. Their minds are set on earthly things. So the question is, where, where are our minds? Are we set on earthly things or are we set on the things of God? Paul would say in verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So, how does Paul do it again? We said it was because of his strength comes from God. It doesn't come from himself, his abilities, what he can do, but it comes because he has a proper perspective. He knows who he is, a sinner, a man who lays claim to nothing because he counts it all as rubbish, Everything that he's done prior to Christ, everything that he was able to do, the wealth of his knowledge of attaining, as he said, righteousness through the law, it didn't matter at all. Everything is gone. I count it all a loss, but the gain is because now I have Christ, because it wasn't about me. I know who I was. I was a sinner. I couldn't help myself out of this condition. And yet there was one who came who helped me out of my condition because he suffered what I should have suffered. He did what I couldn't do, which was to live a perfect life, to do everything that the Father asked of him, to die a horrible death because it was necessary. The scriptures proclaimed it long ago in the Old Testament of what was to occur. Jesus telling his disciples himself, this is what is going to happen. It must come to pass. Because he needed to be that perfect lamb, that perfect sacrifice, to suffer the wrath of God, 
in our place so that we, like Paul can say, to know Christ is gain. A proper perspective. Knowing who he was and knowing who God is. We, I was talking with a couple of people and uh, was mentioning in a book he was reading that uh, there was a little bit of a typo in saying, you know, if, if Jesus was alive today. And the statement is, well, Jesus is alive today. He is here. The book was getting at him being physically present here and now, standing next to me. But the, the question is, he, he isn't dead. He is here. He is alive. He is well. The word is, is alive, is active, is breathing. Hebrews tells us that. It's a knowing of, of who God is, of what his abilities are. It's a belief and a faith that he can do all things, just as Paul says. The way to be content in this life, the contented life, how do we get it? In verse 8 of chapter 4, Philippians, this is the mindset. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And as I read that, I ask, that, I ask those questions. Whatever is true, well, what is true? Whatever is honorable, what is honorable? Whatever is just, who is just? Whatever is pure, who is pure? Whatever is lovely, who is lovely? Whatever is commendable, who is commendable? If there is any excellence, who is excellent? If there is anything worthy of praise, who is worthy of praise? It's an acknowledgement of Jesus Christ. It's an acknowledgement, I am not God. I cannot add anything to my life by worrying, by all of these being anxious, by thinking about everything else that is going on around me, if that detracts from God and takes my sight off of Him, you're in trouble. You won't be content. You won't be happy in your circumstances. You will be fearful you will be anxious and worried and it will most likely eat at you and tear you down, cause you to stumble, cause you to look in other places other than God because our focus is on everything else around us instead of our focus being on the only one that can help us. He who is the author and perfecter of our faith. He who owns everything that we see. 
He who is able to do far more than we can ever imagine. So, this morning, wherever you are, it is a call to bow oneself low, to humble oneself before God. To say, Lord, this is what I'm dealing with. This is what I'm struggling with. And I can't do it by myself. It's not in my power. I don't have control, Father, but you do. I don't have the, the strength to continue on sometimes, Father, but you do. I don't have the shoulders to bear this burden, Father, but you do. And when we give it to him, give it to him all. Don't hold back. Don't keep part of it for yourself to weigh yourself down. But in full awareness and belief in who God is, what he is capable of, of what his word tells us he can do in saying, it's in your hands. I trust in you. To say exactly as Paul says, I know, for I have learned in, in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And it all hinges on one person because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's the only one that can give us happiness, that can give us contentment in this life, that we can say whatever our lot may be, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for where you have placed me. Thank you for exactly where I am right now. Because it is a place, Lord, that despite whatever may happen, despite the circumstances, you can use me right now, right here, to stand firm, to remain steadfast, to speak the truth in love for the one reason and one reason only, to make known the love of God that He has given each and every one of us and make it known to a lost and dying world that would say, I will be happy only when this occurs or when I have attained this part of my life. When, 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 when this occurs and yet Scripture says, no, now, here, whatever. Because it's Christ and what He has already done for us that matters. David, would you come and lead us? And the last song of worship, before we do, um, let's bow our heads.